Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 77. Take it as the theme and title of this psalm, Remembering the Past. Hear God's word. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy, but God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Remembering the past can be a source of both joy and grief. I think all of us can remember good days, family get-togethers, days of our childhood when we played without a care in the world, events and stories of the past that make us laugh as we recall them, times with loved ones, times we wish we could go back and experience again. And memory is a curious thing because at the very time it brings to mind events we want to remember, it also brings to mind events that we would rather put out of our minds. Sometimes memory is bittersweet. How do you feel when you remember good times but know that such times are forever in the past? Some of the loved ones of our wonderful memories have since passed away. And your childhood, as joyous as it may have been, is never going to return. Things don't stay the same, and sometimes our memories can trigger a certain discontent, a longing for something we shall never have again. For the psalmist Asaph, past memories are rosy, and it's memory of the past that, by contrast, makes the present seem all the more difficult. Why can't things right now be like they were in the past? Seems to be the sentiment, the main struggle here of the psalmist. The psalm opens with Asaph in a stupor of confusion and depression. And in such a state, yes, he's doing the right thing by turning to God. He writes, if we translate here literally, my voice to Elohim, I cry, my voice to Elohim, and he listens to me. 
At this point, we might very well say, well, wait a minute, Asaph, you've, you've just said, God hears my prayer, so what's the problem? No, Asaph doesn't say it directly. I think the idea here is that this is really at the very heart of the struggle that he's having. He has prayed to God. Not only prayed, but he has cried out. He sought the Lord. His hand was stretched out in the night without wearying or without ceasing, verse 2. So he's been involved in fervent prayer. But for all of that, he can find no comfort. In fact, the more he thinks about God, the more difficult his situation becomes. He says at the end of verse 2, my soul refuses to be comforted. Verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. Isn't it the case that we remember God, we meditate upon him because we expect in that way to find comfort and encouragement? It's a common thing for us as Christians. In fact, the teaching of many Psalms that we are to meditate upon God and his word in order that we might gain perspective, proper perspective, godly perspective, helpful and comforting perspective on a hardship that we are going through. And so we think about God's love and his power and his wisdom and, his, and even the cross and the gospel, and especially those. And we think about the willingness of God to send his son to die for us. And our hearts are reassured that God loves us and that he has not forsaken us. And yet in Asaph's case, meditation has made him feel worse. Well, why? Well, because the more he thought about God and his ways, the more confused he got and why was this? Because there he was in this horrible situation in which he desperately desires God's help, and yet there's little evidence to no evidence that God cares. He knew enough about God to know that God had heard his prayer. So why is there no action coming from God? And this is what was troublesome, troublesome to the very foundations of his faith. So that Asaph says in verse 3 that he moans a word that in the Greek refers to being in your heart and in your mind in this very tumultuous state of commotion. It's even the word that speaks of being boisterous and turbulent so that Asaph here is very clearly disturbed. He's restless. He's all stirred up inside because he doesn't understand God's ways with him and his spirit is overwhelmed. Why doesn't God rescue him? I'm certain that all of us at Various times have experienced what it is to feel overwhelmed, where you feel like you've just had it and that you can't handle anymore. When we think about God in such circumstances, often we do nothing more than become anxious and, and we complain. We're, we're too caught up in our problems to see God as anything other than someone to blame. For he could answer our prayers, but he doesn't. This is how. I understand the, the psalmist to be thinking in the early part of this psalm. He's thinking about God, but not in a humble, submissive way. And in addition to the complaining of verse 3, there's also verse 4 where he says to God, you hold my eyelids open. The psalmist is not able to sleep. And he's going through this struggle. He can't sleep. And I take his words here of God holding his eyelids open. He's blaming God. He's essentially saying, Lord, you, you could, but you're not granting me the ability to sleep peacefully. You are the one who is holding my eyelids open. Meanwhile, Asaph points out, I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. In verse, verses 5 and 6, Asaph explains further what is particularly bothersome. He says, I have, or, or I consider the days of old, 
the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made diligent search. So the psalmist remembers the past. He remembers a good past. He remembers times when he was happy. What a contrast between then and now. Now the nights drag on, his heart heavy with concerns. In the past, the night was when he sang. He used to be happy in God. Life used to be joyful. Well, what has happened? Asaph is very much feeling sorry for himself. He's thinking about the past in comparison with his present life, and he feels like God is being hard with him. We need to notice that in the beginning part of this psalm, as Asaph writes here about his struggle, he is very much focused on himself. And we can see that even in the use of the pronouns in the first six verses of this psalm. We find the first person singular pronoun, I or me, used 18 times. While there are only six references to God and I understand two of those references to not be in a positive light. Verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. By contrast, in the last eight verses of the psalm, in verses 13 through 20, there are 21 mentions of God and no personal references at all. And what you and I are to understand in this is that it's not coincidence that Asaph is struggling spiritually when his focus is so much upon himself and his problems isn't it a big part of our sin problem and a big part of why we struggle so deeply the fact that we're so self-centered we're so self-absorbed we're so self-focused you think that we know better than god how our lives should be run you and i tend to think that our lives as christians should be the enjoyment of one pleasant event after another and we so easily complain against our god and we blame him for our discontent which is exactly why we need God's word. We need the words here of this psalm. Because what we see happening in verses 7 through 9 is a change in perspective that needs to happen in our lives. We need to stop allowing our feelings to run our lives and to get ourselves grounded in the truth of God's word. We need to be going back to the basics, really, of knowing God, knowing his character. We so easily remember the good times of the past we're so ready to question God and to complain when, when the, you know, why can't these times just continue? We remember the past, we remember the good times, but we so easily forget who our God is and what he is like. And Asaph is beginning to transition from a self-centered attitude and perspective to a God-centered perspective as he begins to ask some very relevant questions about God, these rhetorical questions that we know the answers to. He knew the answers to. There are six questions there in verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Asaph knew the answers to these questions, just as we do. And the obvious answer is, of course not. God doesn't change. God doesn't break his promises. He doesn't stop being merciful and gracious. People of God, the cross of Jesus Christ is just as much the hope of your salvation now as it has always been. 
Jesus truly paid the debt of your sin. Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross was accepted by his Father on your behalf. And your faith that through Jesus' death your sins are forgiven is faith in something that has been accomplished and will never change. With your sins covered by Jesus' blood, there is nothing that can happen in this life to you that is an expression of God's wrathful anger. Yes, your, your things happen that may feel like judgment, and you may feel like you are under God's curse, and maybe you are being chastened for a particular sin, but maybe not. Maybe God is simply testing your faith to purify it and to strengthen it. But either way, no matter what is happening in Christ, you are loved. Either way, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Once you belong to the fold of Jesus' sheep, you will never be abandoned and you will never come to any harm. So when you have doubts concerning God, the problem really is not with God, it's with your seeing things incorrectly. It was Asaph who was wrong, not God. And yet I see God's mercy and how even the struggle of the psalmist has made its way into the Bible. And I see this as God's mercy because I don't see the Lord here condemning Asaph for his lack of faith. I see in this psalm the Lord telling us that he knows our frame, he knows our weaknesses, and yet, of course, he instructs us. What he would prefer we do instead of moping and self-pity is to bring our struggles to him in prayer. Wrestle with God, and don't allow your meditations to focus only on the good old days, and certainly don't allow yourself to think only about your situation and how bad it is and question why it's happening. As long as your focus is only on yourself and your circumstances, you're only setting yourself up to have a pity party. Rather, turn your mind upon God. Even as painful and as frustrating as it may be to think about that one who is sovereignly in control of what is happening in your life, you must turn to God. He is the only one who can truly restore your soul and give joy to your life. He is the only one who can truly help you. What we find in verse 10 is the psalmist finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. He's finally remembering not only his earlier happiness, which has only led to depression, but also what God has done in past years. His focus is finally turning from being on himself to being on God. Verse 10 is one of those verses that's rather difficult to translate. There are a number of different translations and different ideas. Um, The two words in particular that are difficult are the words appeal and the word translated years. Um, rather than the word appeal, the, actually the word anguish is used in, for instance, the New King James Version, where it, where it reads, and I said, this is my anguish. While the ESV has, then I said, I will appeal to this. You, you, you can recognize completely different ideas, anguish or appeal. And then we have the word years as it's used in the ESV. I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. In other words, I will remember the years in which the Lord used his right hand in mighty acts of power and mercy. While other translators want to speak of how the right hand of the Most High has changed. Um, The New American Standard, for example, says, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. And um, I believe that the translation that best fits the flow of thought in this psalm is the idea that in the midst of his doubts, the psalmist appeals to the Lord's mighty acts, 
that have taken place over the years. So as such as we have here in the ESV, he's appealing to the Lord's mighty acts that have taken place. This is his source of encouragement. This is where he finds hope. And this is exactly what he goes on to talk about in verses 11 and 12, where he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Do you do this? Do you remember the deeds of the Lord, the wonders of old? Do you ponder the Lord's work? Do you meditate on his mighty deeds? And think about how different this is than thinking only about your struggle and feeling sorry for yourself. To talk about God, to meditate upon God and what he has done, that's a completely different perspective and one that will actually make you feel better. In fact, this is one of the purposes of pastoral visits when someone is going through a difficult time, perhaps uh, they're awaiting a surgery. It's hard to think of anything but the surgery. People's minds in various difficult situations are, can be filled with worry. Maybe you feel overwhelmed. Well, that's when you need to have your mind turned to the Lord, to the reading of his word and prayer. Meditate on God instead of worrying. When someone has lost a loved one, it can be hard to think of anything else um, than that loss. There are many situations where we find ourselves thinking about ourselves and our circumstances more than the God who is in control of our lives. And so we have to have constantly the, this, this notion that we need to be directing our minds, redirecting our minds to God so often. And that is the way to healing and comfort and encouragement. In uh, verses 13 through 15, in fact, we find the psalmist thinking about three particular attributes or character traits of God. It may be that in your reading or hearing of the word in a time of crisis, additional attributes of God are brought to your attention than what we have here. But the important thing is that in a time of crisis, you take to heart who God is, what he is like. And in these verses, um, there are three attributes that are to be found here. Um, in verses 13 through 15, your way, O God, is holy, but God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. First attribute, I think, you know, stands out, uh, jumps out at us immediately there in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. So the psalmist is saying that God is holy in all that he does. Uh, we need to meditate on God's holiness. Um, this is a very uh, rich attribute of God. And um, it basically has to do with God's otherness, that he is, that he is set apart from us, uh, in one sense being above us. Um, we are just creatures, and he is above us in majesty and power. Transcendent is the word that theologians use of our God. He is above us, infinitely above us. And holiness also speaks of God's being set apart morally, that he is pure, that whatever he does is upright, which means for us in the middle of a struggle is that we can trust God to be doing what is right. Being above us, which means that his, um, in part means that his wisdom is higher than our wisdom, that he's able to see the beginning and end of all things, his mind is infinitely above our minds, and so he is able to know how to govern this world so that no matter what happens, he is glorified and his church is blessed. 
as holy, God is above us, and so it's really sinful, it, it's really silly, it's, it's prideful to think that we can call God into question for how he does things. And furthermore, as a holy God, as, as being pure without sin or any moral blemish, we can be assured God is doing what is right. He is incapable of doing something unjust. He is incapable of, uh, of failing to keep one of his promises. God reminds us in Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And are you able to trust the Lord, his wisdom and his holiness, when you don't understand his ways? It helps in trusting the Lord to remember his holiness. Then we have the second attribute, which is God's greatness or God's power. In verses 11 and 12, Asaph has been reflecting on God's works and wonders and thinking about these works. And God's holiness has led Asaph to ask at the end of verse 13, what God is great like our God? He goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. This greatness of God that is particularly highlighted here is God's ability to carry out his holy will. God has power. God has infinite power to do whatever he chooses to do. He has displayed that power through the many miracles revealed in Scripture. Verse 14 speaks of Uh, directly of God's might, of his strength. Verse 15, of God's arm, which is the symbol of his strength. I'm reminded about how all of us make plans. All of us have things that we would like to do. There are things that we ought to do, and yet we're not always able to do them. In fact, one of the frustrating things of life is how we often, as the, the saying goes, we spin our wheels. A lot of activity, but we don't always get things done like we would like. Uh, We have good intentions, but at times have a problem carrying through on our desires. But with God, it's different. God not only has a plan for this world, and it's a plan that has as its goal his glory and the good of the church, but God is, is, is able to fulfill that plan. He is at every moment accomplishing each step of his plan. Nothing frustrates God. Nothing catches God off guard or surprises him. He has the power, he has the ability, the the might to carry out his wise and holy plan. I don't think there's any attribute of God that really is more important to our comfort and assurance than God's power. To know that no matter what's happening to you, God is in control. Your actions, the devil, circumstances, none of these things are roadblocks to God's will being fulfilled. Your struggles are not a mistake. They're not an instance in which the devil has gotten the upper hand. Rather, your struggles are a part of God's plan to bless you. That's, that truth is at the very heart of our joy in the midst of trials. And then there is this third attribute, which is to be found in the word redeemed there in verse 15. God's redemption of sinners brings out God's, God's uh, attributes uh, as being a loving, caring, gracious God. Think about it, it's one thing to have an upright plan, a wise plan. It's, a, it's another thing to 
um, to also have the power to carry out to carry it out, and yet another thing altogether to have um, the power to carry out a plan that is grounded in God's love and grace. See, God's plan could have been that we all be punished in hell for all eternity. Uh, if that had been the plan, it would have been right. God would have had the power to bring it to pass. God's holiness and power by themselves don't require him to have a plan that blesses us. But that is, in fact, the kind of God we have. He is a merciful God who knew our misery and sin and chose to deliver us from it. Think of that word redemption. It means to buy back through the paying of a ransom. And that is what God did in love. He redeemed us. He, he bought us back to himself. He made us his own once again through the ultimate payment of Jesus' life on the cross. God used his power to destroy the forces of evil, to put to death sin and the curse. It was divine power that sustained the human body of Jesus against his infinite wrath so that the man Jesus, as our representative, was able to endure all of the suffering that our sins deserve without being utterly consumed. It's the almighty power of God that also raised Jesus from the dead. And what this redemption means is that there is never a moment, child of God, when you are in need of trying to buy yourself back into God's favor. Never a moment when you are needing to pay the price of your sin. Now, this doesn't mean there are no consequences to sin. There are consequences. There, there are times when God sends hardships into our lives in direct response to our sin. But this is what the Bible calls chastening. It's, it's loving discipline, and it's not about wrathful judgment. This discipline is not about having to experience sorrow as some kind of a, a, a way of making atonement for your sin. But discipline is sent in love to actually those whose sins are covered already judicially and justification and if your trust is in christ for the forgiveness of your sins then be assured that you are right with god christ's payment through his obedience and death on the cross has paid for your sins in full and this is so very important to understand for your comfort as a child of god you can never again come under god's condemnation whether or not you can see it and fully understand it your hardships are sent in love. They are part of God's plan to bless you. Believe this, believing what Christ has accomplished for you. And what we have in the last section of this psalm is Asaph giving us a, what I believe is a, is a poetic description of one of the greatest acts of redemption when God delivered his people from Egypt. This is a very vivid description to us of the exodus through the Red Sea. And there are some details here like rain and thunder, lightning, uh, the trembling of the earth, um, details that are not found in the account in Exodus. And it's hard to know if these are to be taken literally or if this is poetry. But either way, our minds are directed to that great event, which was a display of God's power at a time when he displayed and uh, in a very concrete way his love for his people. And, of course, that redemption from Egypt was a picture. It was a type of our redemption in Christ. The bondage of Egypt was a picture of our bondage to the devil and sin, a life of misery. But God came to his people, came to us in our bondage, and in power redeemed us, delivering us from our enemies and giving us new life. Let's not be like Israel in the wilderness 
As you can recall, they were constantly questioning God's ways. Remember how they murmured against God for leading them out into the wilderness to die? They complained about the ability of Moses and Aaron to lead them. They complained about their food and water. Nevertheless, God step by step demonstrated that he was faithful to his covenant. And by his power, he did preserve his people, delivering them from humanly impossible situations and even using in mighty ways the human instruments of Moses and Aaron. Let's not be like Israel, who tended to look only at their outward circumstances. Let us think about our God, his holiness, his power, his acts of redemption. Let our focus be upon Christ and the relationship that we have with God through him. Then we will have the right perspective on life, a God-centered perspective. And by God's grace, this will be the perspective in which we find grace um, from the Lord that, that gives us joy and comfort in all circumstances. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the redemption that we have through him that, that colors all of life. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God, infinitely above us, but also a powerful God and a God who has come to us in Jesus, who loves us, who has redeemed us. Father, may we focus upon these things as we face trials in life. May our focus not be upon simply the good, good times that we enjoyed in the past. May we not question uh, your ways with us when you don't immediately grant us what we think should be the good times that should go on forever. Father, we pray that we would recognize that even in trials, you are with us and you are blessing us. May our focus, Lord, be upon you rather than upon ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.